Well, good morning. We'll be in James chapter 1, verse 19 through 27. You know, I'm wearing a cardigan this morning, and it's 70 degrees. But there's only one time a year you get to wear these, so I'm going to do it. Hope I don't get too hot. Friends, is there such a thing as a nominal Christian? You know, we've probably all heard the term, kind of a fair-weather Christian or someone who kind of goes through the motions. We're probably familiar with the term nominal. Is it possible for a Christian to say everything that sounds right and even look the part sometimes, but still be more of a fence rider? Is there such a thing as a Christian who rides the pine and does not contribute to the kingdom. Friends, in this passage, James is addressing many questions like this. And friends, nominal Christians weren't even a term until a few hundred years ago. Because Christians knew you were either in or you were out. You were either white or you were black. There's no gray. There's no in-between. And it's only been in the recent times that this term, nominal Christian, has emerged. So according to biblical standards, I don't want there to be any confusion. Nominal Christians are not on the pages. They are nowhere to be seen. But can someone simply be deceived into thinking that they can just kind of ride the bench And be okay doing it. And what about those who consciously seek to do so? Are they Christians? Friends, if you'll remember back in the previous sermons that I I preached, the previous two. In verses 2 through 4, James begins by talking to those who are experiencing trials. If you remember, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greeting. So he's talking to the church that has dispersed. And more than likely, they're going through many, many trials, many sufferings. And he says this because the Christians he's writing to are probably in, dispersed across the nations. So there are probably a few people who could relate to James' words when he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And I'm sure there were many who were in the middle of experiencing trials, whether it was some kind of suffering due to illness, like mentioned in chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. Or it could be that someone was experiencing some kind of persecution as a result of being ridiculed for the name of Christ. Maybe they were poor, not being regarded as highly as those who are rich. James even gives a warning to the rich in chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. So friends, also remember that James is talking to Christians who are struggling with asking God for the wisdom necessary in order to look at their trials, view their trials through a heavenly perspective. 
So he tells them in verse 5 of chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. He even warns them so that they would not be double-minded, doubting that God can give what he promises. James also reminds the poor and the rich to remember their heavenly state, not to rely on their earthly one, and he reminds them by saying the rich man will fade away in the midst of all of his pursuits. Like a flower of the grass, it's going to pass away. He urges the believers to remain steadfast under trials, prompting them by saying that those who do so will receive the crown of life. And he even says that God has promised it to all those who love him. But while these believers are going through these trials, he cautions them to remember that God does not tempt towards sin because God himself can't sin. And sin does not originate in God. The temptation we experience is the result of our own sinful hearts. And then James tells the Christian, whether it's the audience he was writing to in the the century that he was writing, or if if it's our audience for us today, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change but friends what about those who do not believe that the gifts God gives are good you might be someone who thinks that God is out to get you (laughs) I've met some people who think that they're just on God's hit list what about those who do not count their trials as joy And find it almost impossible to imagine thinking they could ever do that. The person who instead of asking God for wisdom. Goes to their friends. Asking for advice first. And maybe asking God for wisdom somewhere later down the line. Someone who comes face to face with the reality that the psalmist mentions in Psalm 39, 5-6. He says, behold you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my time is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And when they come face to face with that, they're either driven to despair Or they say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Becoming a narcissist or a nihilist in the process of taking a sober gaze at their mortality. A person who, instead of remaining steadfast under trial, they believe the deceptive lie that God is the reason for their downfall. And do not believe that what God gives is good which would mean that God isn't good either friends maybe you're a Christian and you're tempted to believe these things what happens to the people I've just mentioned when something bad happens in their life friends you don't respond with joy we respond with anger 
We respond with anger in our hearts towards either our friends or towards God, or we might even blame something as broad as the world is out to get me. Friends, what happens to those? Whether it's towards God or our friends or our family, James writes in verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This passage is coming on the heels of verse 18. Verse 18 reads this way, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now this verse is, is pointing out the fact that God is the one who causes the new birth in the life of the believer. That's the note that I ended on in, my, in the sermon prior to this, is that God actually creates new birth in a person. And he does that by creating it and birthing it and bringing it forth. So it is a, it's not an act of the person, but entirely an act of God by placing his divine love on a person and through Jesus Christ enacts that love upon that person, causing them to be born again by the Spirit. Then he starts verse 19 by referring to Christians, referring to them who he's writing to as beloved brothers. And friends, by this he is making the point that these are people who have experienced the new birth. He's not talking to just a bunch of random people. He's talking to Christians. Friends, he's writing to the church. He is not writing to the world in a broad sense and saying that all a person has to do is modify their life a little bit and then they'll be acceptable in God's sight. No, friends, he is saying that the people, to the people he is writing, who have experienced the new birth and are now accepted in God's sight, that they are in Christ. They are now loved 
because they're in the Beloved. What is mentioned in the following in this passage is not behavior modification, but Christian sanctification. Brothers and sisters, God does not simply change the behavior of a man, but he changes the disposition of a person. He changes the heart of a person. God is not out to change the way you act until he changes the way you believe, until he changes the way you are. He changes the state of the person, the disposition of the person, the will of the person. When the righteousness of God invades the fortress of wickedness in our hearts, and like Jericho, friends, he tears those walls down, and maybe they're walls we spent a lifetime building ourselves, and he plants the kingdom there by his spirit. Friends, this is not an adjusted life. This is a transformed life. This is not an adjustment of your behavior. This is a transformation of your character. And God does that. We have nothing to do with that. The scripture says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Friends, the reason it is stated like this is because the former two are affected by the final one. The quickness of our hearing and the slowness that attends our speech depends on whether or not our heart is angry. This is why it follows quickly by saying that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I mean, ask the question as you read the text, why does he only mention one of the three things? It's because he's drawing out that it's a disposition. It's a heart problem. It's a heart disposition. It's a heart posture towards God. That is a life that is pleasing to God. Friends, anger does not produce that. Now there are some exceptional ways that are represented even in Scripture about having a righteous anger, but friends, 99% of the time in Scripture and in life, the anger that we have is marred by sin. It's just tainted by sin. Even if it even if this much is good, friends, this much might be a little and a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. Friends, this does not please God. He says the anger of man does not please God. It does not produce a life where the character pleases God. Beloved, an angry heart produces an idle ear and a hasty tongue. An angry heart produces an idle ear and a hasty tongue. Think about those moments where you get angry with your spouse. Or you get angry with a friend. Or maybe your roommate. Maybe it's your brother or your sister. Your children. Because they did that thing again that just drives you crazy. Now think about the speech that attend the, the conversation that followed that. 
Or think about the eagerness and willingness you had to listen to anything they had to say after that. It is in the moments where, our, where we are angry that we have the greatest tendency to say something unloving and have an unforgiving ear. We become impatient with those we are angry with. Think about it in reference to how we speak the word to one another. And hear the word from one another. Do we seek to hear with eagerness and to speak with care? Friends, the the word of God is a mighty, mighty weapon to wield. And it is not meant to be used as a club to beat each other with. With your speech, do you leave more bruises than cures? And when you hear the word, friends, whether it is preached to you from a pulpit or it's spoken to you by a brother or a sister, does the conviction in your heart tend to irritate you or humble you? Friends, when you, you know when you have an infection, irritation's bad, and it gets all red. Friends, that's how someone is who feels the conviction of the Spirit and does not want to submit to the Spirit, does not want to humble themselves to the Spirit. It just irritates the sin in them. And so when they hear the truth, they don't respond with humility. They respond with anger. And they say, I don't want to submit. I don't want to follow God. Friends, if it, if it does more irritation... Friends, that speaks to your inner disposition. When you hear the word of God, when you read the word of God, when you hear it from a brother or sister in Christ, what comes? What comes as a result, as a response to that truth? Does it irritate or does it humble? Either you think you know Christ and are deceived into believing that you follow Christ without repenting of your sin, or you do know Christ and are still in need of repentance. This is why the scripture goes on to say, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. And he adds on the end, which is able. To save your souls. Now what do we see that James is trying to draw to the the foreground? Repent and receive the word with meekness. Repentance and receiving the word with meekness. But we also see that the word must be planted. Because it is that, that word that can save your souls. The word literally means to be grafted on the soul. It's a word that that means when the word comes and it is planted upon your soul, that word is able to save your soul. But when a word falls on bad soil, you remember the, the sermon that Blake preached recently, the parable of the soils. How the seed fell along the path and fell on the rocky ground without much soil and fell among the thorns and also the good soil. I think James might be picking up on the same language here that Jesus used there. 
he's pointing out that the seed of the word must plant itself in the soil that the Spirit has tilled beforehand. The Spirit must till your heart and make the soil able to receive the word. And when the word does fall on good soil, it will save your soul. But But when the word does not fall on good soil, friends... Or maybe someone who sits in church and they hear the word preached but they show no fruits of repentance in their lives. And that word keeps falling among the thorns. That word keeps falling on the hard ground. That word keeps growing a little bit and then dying off because the cares of the world choke it out. That word will not save your soul. Now, that does not speak to the inability of God's word. We know that Hebrews says that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and marrow. So it's not speaking ill of God's holy word. It is speaking about the posture, the disposition of your heart. Has the heart been tilled to receive the word of God with humility? Repent and receive. Do not be deceived into thinking that you can come to church and hear the word of God preached from the pulpit, friends, every single Sunday. While believing, you're fine. If you can just keep on doing the minimum it takes to slip by. Brothers and sisters, the scripture is abolishing that idea here. By saying that you either repent of your sin and receive the word of God with meekness or you don't repent of your sin and continue to pretend you are receiving the word with meekness and go to hell. That's why the passage says the implanted word. That word is able to save your souls. Please rid your thinking of this grayness. There's no grayness. We need to get rid of this nominal Christianity. This fake it to make it. This slip by. Judas deceived all the disciples, but he did not deceive Jesus. And at the end, Jesus says, it's someone around this table. And they all said, who is it? They were all deceived. Except Jesus. Remember, Scripture says, many will cry, Lord, Lord. Did we not do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Dear friends, I would like to urge you, do not go on being deceived and remaining in your sin. Do not go on Remaining deceived and remaining in your sin. Thinking that you're going to be okay. You won't be okay when you are called to account by God the judge. To give an account for your actions. Repent of your sins. And receive the word of God with meekness. And Christian... You will not receive the word of God with meekness if you do not first know how the Lord has forgiven you. 
and that you have repented of those sins which he has forgiven you of. Psalm 32, 1 through 2 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The very essence of blessedness is in knowing how much you've been forgiven. Show me a man who has been forgiven much, and I'll show you a man who can count it all joy when trials come. And can remain steadfast, even when God has them in the vice of his grace. The first part, 19 through 21, is the inner disposition of the heart. The second part, verse 22 through 25, is the expression of the new heart. James 22 says, but be doers of the word. 122, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a, a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looked like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Friends, James goes on by saying this, and, and notice he is not simply talking about doing and hearing. So the action of doing and hearing, he is talking about being a doer and a hearer. Notice those two words, being a doer and a hearer. This is important because we need to see that there are two different categories that he's giving here. People who receive the word can end up becoming just receivers, just hearing. Either they become a doer of the word by their hearing or they remain only a hearer of the word. Those are the two things he gives. What we see made clear is that the intent behind receiving the word, that's the goal that James is trying to hint at. What's the intent? When the word is preached, when you receive the word with meekness, what is the intent of your heart? Do you intend to hear it only or do you intend to do the word? So James gives us this helpful illustration in verse 23 through 24 about the self-deception of hearing the word without doing it. And let's read that again. Verse 23 through 24 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now I think of this illustration um, like this. Have you ever been to dinner with a friend and while you're at dinner, as you're both eating, you see your friend has something on his face. And you tell them, hey man, you, you got something. You got something right there. Well, your friend tries to get it off. He, he sits there trying to do it for a little, you know, a minute. And whatever it is, it just won't come off. And you, saw, you say to him, I don't want to have to touch your face, so you got to go to the bathroom. So he gets up and goes to the bathroom. So they get up, they walk off, 
And a few minutes later, they come back, and you look at your friend, and lo and behold, whatever was on their face is still on their face. And of course, you're puzzled, and you ask them, did you go to the bathroom? And they say, oh yeah, I, I, did. I did. I did. I went to the bathroom. And you ask, did you see what was on your face? And they say, oh yeah, I saw it. I, I know what the food is. I know what it looks like. But after I looked in the mirror for a while, I just kind of walked away and forgot about it. I don't know about you, but my response would be, go to the bathroom and get it off your face. Get it off your face. It's just hanging there, right on your face. Friends, the scripture is showing us here that there should be that kind of expectancy and confusion in our minds when someone is a hearer of the word but not a doer. It's like they go to the word and they leave it and nothing happens. They go to the word, they might even receive it with meekness, but they don't do anything as a result. Their life does not change. Someone says, I go to church all the time. Great. How's your life on Friday and Saturday night? There should be that kind of disconnect in our minds when we hear of someone who receives the word but does not do the word. Now, I don't want to express that there's no grace. I'm not trying to say that there's no grace for people who struggle. Friends, we all struggle. But the reality is that there should be a, an expectancy. We, don't, we, we hopefully shouldn't expect to struggle forever. Now, we will struggle with different things at different times in our lives, but pray that the Lord moves you on and you grow in maturity. And so, yes, there is grace. But there should be that expectancy. James says, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Not that there is anything wrong with hearing the word. Friends, it's necessary. But it's also necessary that you do the word. And yes, I said necessary. Obeying God is a necessary part of salvation. It does not save you, but it is necessary. God is pleased by our words in as far as they lead us to righteous actions. We can speak the truth and never be changed by that truth. And God finds it distasteful to speak in a righteous way but not live righteously as a result. Thomas Manton gives this little quote. He says, painted fire needs no fuel. That's all he says. Now, when I first read that, I had no idea what he meant. And I even Googled what painted fire was. It's not a real thing. It's just literally painting fire on a canvas. What he meant was simply looking at a wall and taking paint and making it look like there's a real fire there. Or think of, maybe you don't have a fireplace, you have your TV and you put a fireplace up on your TV. See, a real fire does, doesn't find fuel optional. It needs fuel. It requires fuel to live. If you cut off oxygen, the fire will die. 
If you stop throwing wood on the fire, it will die. Friend, seeking to do the word without receiving the word first will dry you out as a Christian. It'll dry you out. The oceans will dry up if the rain ceases and the rivers stop running. Doing the word without first hearing and receiving the word is like washing a car with a dry sponge. It just doesn't work. It's either going to wear you out or destroy the sponge. It doesn't work. As a Christian, hearing the word is not optional. It is necessary fuel for the Christian walk. Friends, this is why Thomas Manton uses this quote. This is why he said that. It's because he's trying to make it very clear that real fire, real combustion takes fuel. And if you just look the part and you need no fuel, friends, you might be able to look the part for some time and deceive a lot of people, but inwardly you're dying and you're deceived. Not only does painted fire need no fuel, but painted fire produces no heat. In other words, fire without any heat's worthless. Now I know there are other things like ambiance or light, and that, that's what flashlights are for. <laughs> Get your flashlight. Now what would happen if you were pouring fuel on a fire and the fire was not getting warmer? How odd would that be? What you do is you kill that fire, and you move on, and you make a new fire. See, like I said, friends, painted fire might look the part, but it's not the real thing. James is telling us that God wants Christians who have some some heavenly heat to them, some coal in the soul, some holiness to them that ignites their souls. So instead of just looking the part, there's a little heat that comes off. And when people walk close, they feel the heat. It's not just living a life that looks like you're following Jesus, it's living a life that is following Jesus. It's not looking like painted fire. Christian, if you believe that God, and that to please God, you can be hearers only. It's like fires with no heat. No matter how much fuel you dump on them, That fire might roar, but it sucks up all the fuel and produces no heat. Christians are supposed to be producers, not consumers. And painted fire doesn't produce any light either. Beloved, we should not let our security in Christ lead us to laziness for him. We should not let our meekness in receiving the word lead us to passivity in doing it. Now, if you were to look at the Greek words for looks, the word looks, if you're you're using the English Standard Bible, in verse 23 and 24, the word for looks means to perceive, means to understand. That's quite literally what it means, to perceive or understand. But, the, but in verse 25, verse 25 reads like this. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
The word for looks in verse 25 is a different Greek word than the former two verses in 23 through 24. While verses 23 through 24 means to perceive or understand the word in verse 25, verse 25 means to stoop down and to take a look. It means to look at it in a way that makes your body bend forward. It's a closer look. And the closer look is into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, friends, there's something interesting about these two adjectives he uses to describe the law. The first word is perfect. And it means to be complete or to be finished. The consummated law, it's done. So we know that James is referring, what he's referring to, and he's not referring to the Old Testament law, friends, but to the one who came to fulfill the law. Jesus Christ. The second word he uses is the word liberty. The word liberty. And what is liberty? But freedom. Now why does he use these two words? Perfect, perfect, complete, finished, and free. Liberty. Friends, since the law is complete, God doesn't need us to make it complete. It's done. We don't need to fall into thinking that God wants us to be doers of the word because God, somehow, in his perfect, all-knowing glory, forgot to tie up a loose end. Or that the Great Commission somehow depends on us and not God. That unity in the church somehow depends on us and not God. When Jesus died on the cross and said, It is finished. By implication, God is saying, He doesn't need us. Because He finished it. And He doesn't need us to do anything. He doesn't need us to do anything for Him. Friends, He could do it without us. But friends, isn't that a liberating thought? Isn't it liberating to know that God's plan of redeeming sinners for his glory does not depend on us. It doesn't depend on how well you evangelize. It doesn't depend on how sharp you are with your theological tongue or your wit. God will redeem sinners. Depending on whether you fail, whether you feel like you failed, or the Lord uses that and actually redeems someone's soul as a result of you feeling like you failed, Friend, if you think you owe God something as if His grace wasn't free or that God does depend on you to somehow finish up what He started, the law is not one of liberty but of bondage. It is by persevering into the, in the perfect law that God desires to make you perfect. Notice it's not that we just look into the perfect law. It's that God desires us to be perfected by it. Remember back in verse 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, 
complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, that's the same word we have here. He doesn't desire you to remain incomplete. And we know that we'll be made perfect like our father, like our brother, when we get to heaven, like our savior. God doesn't give the perfect law so that we can remain mediocre in our doing of the word. But that we might be perfect, as our heavenly father is perfect. It is by looking and leaning in to understand and doing that perfect law that we will know that the greatest liberty, friends, the greatest liberty that this life holds is one of duty to Christ. And the greatest bondage we will ever experience is when we are still shackled to our sin. John 8.36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Friend, don't remain in bondage to your sin. If you're an unbeliever here and you know you're not Christian, not a Christian, or you think, or people might think you are a Christian, but you, you know you're not. You might look the part and you might have people's eyes, you might have the wool pulled over their eyes. Friends, don't remain in the deceptive lies of Satan. This passage refers to self-deception twice and once in the previous section. That means that you can be deceived. We can be deceived into thinking that we're okay with just coasting in the Christian life. Stop being a simple hearer and remaining chained to your sin. While you see others being perfected in Christ, friends, repent of your sins. Repent of your sins. Receive the word with meekness and gaze into the perfect law of God because it it is there, friends. It is there that you will find the liberty that you're looking for. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Look to Christ who is the author, the sustainer, and the finisher of your faith. And know that God is first pleased by your status in Christ. And then he is pleased by what you do for him. Now friends, if you're one who struggles with with doing the word, as we all do, because you're already struggling with your own to-do list that you make yourself and you don't need one from God as well, Friends, pray that God would would rid your heart of people-pleasing. Scrap the to-do list, sit, and receive the word with meekness. There is a time for that. Sit and receive the word with meekness. If you're overwhelmed, there's nothing wrong with that. The Lord takes pleasure in seeing his people receive the word with meekness. And pray that the Lord will give you a servant's heart. And seek to do nothing out of compulsion, but only willingly. Friends, if you struggle with doing the word, because you find yourself being more complacent about hearing the word and doing the word than you should be, pray that God would first give you an urgency to do the word. But then get your hands on the plow and start pushing. 
Friends, the goal James leads to is not simply doing. It's not just doing a bunch of stuff for God. Because it can turn into legalism very fast. As if that's all God wants. But he references that it is being blessed in our doing. It's being a perseverer who is blessed in the doing that he does. Knowing that our being affects our doing. Not the other way around. And friends, I, wanna, I also want to say that there is this, there's this dilemma that a lot of us struggle with. And the struggle is that we have to somehow discover what we are good at before we can serve. Friends, I want to say, and Blake has mentioned this many times, serve and then maybe you'll find out what you're good at. I think we put it opposite. I think we're stuck trying to find the gifts that we are gifted with. And yes, God has given us all gifts. He has equipped his church with the gifts necessary to equip and build up his church. But friends, if we're so stuck worrying about what gifts we have, we will never do anything for him. Just do something. Do something for him. Obey him. Friends, a sign of being blessed in your doing is whether or not you're doing, is, is whether or not what you're doing for the church is it building her up? Is it building up the church? The third thing I want to point out in this passage is in verse 26 to 27, and it is the religion of a new heart. Verse 26 to 27 says this, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure, And undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James uses some interesting terms in this passage, and really the big one is is religion. He uses the term religion, and friends, not many churches, not many people use that word. I mean, true Christians use that word because it can be so broad there's a lot of religions out there, but James uses that, uses that word here. And he's expressing how a religion is supposed to be full, how it's supposed to be vibrant. And in verse 26, we see that James is simply pointing out that something that is universally true about religion in general, a religion that only affects the mind and does not affect or change the behavior is a worthless religion. A religion that does not change the mind not only affects the mind, but also affects or changes the behavior. Friends, that religion, he's pointing out, is a good religion. Now, I'm not trying to condone like Islam or Buddhism or any other religion where their actions actually do follow in accordance with the word, with the word that they have. It's not the word that, the true word, it's not the Bible, it's not God's word. Friends, they're in deception. They're deceived into thinking that they are pleasing God while persecuting God's people. And friends, so it's not a it's not an on and off switch. It's not as if that religion is good as well. No, he points to a a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. So it's he's he's not trying to paint this broad stroke, he's trying to make it very clear that true Christian religion should look a certain way. 
and he returns to the topic of the tongue, which will continue to be a major theme throughout the rest of this book. But I also need to point out that these two verses act as a brief summary for the rest of the book. If you were to look at these two verses, read them over, and go throughout the rest of the entire book, it would, you'd find these kind of themes come back up over and over again. And James isn't just being redundant. He is actually trying to drive home a point. The legitimacy of religion will always be determined by actions and not words. The legitimacy of religion will always be determined by actions and not words. Does Paul agree with him? Yes. Romans chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. Now, of course, this passage, Paul's talking about the Old Testament law, but I still think it resounds true in the New. What we say we believe must affect how we live. Or that religion we say that we believe is a worthless religion. Friends, think of the way that this communicates with those who do not know Christ. When you say you're a Christian and do not follow Christ, do not thirst for Christ, are not satisfied in Christ, does the world look on at our religion and say, is it worthless? Is the religion that they serve, is it worthless? See, James isn't simply saying that you need to be a doer, but he's saying that he's adding the legitimacy of religion based on the way it changes the actions that you perform. We're seeing that the, the notch, James is just keeps turning up this notch. Now saying that a religion that doesn't change your life is no better than the dust you walk on. It's worthless. And friends, if you, if you do struggle with doing the word, if you do struggle with obedience, as we all do, and that person at your work or that friend who never sees you in the word or may see you skipping church and not really having a, much of a care, nonchalant. Friends, that may not be you, but if it is you, how is that communicating to them the worth of your religion? The worth of the Savior that you serve? The word literally means, the word worthless, literally means it has no force behind it. It does not bring any success. This is how James continues to draw the line in the sand for those who call themselves Christians but don't live like it. So true religion must not depend on mere words to legitimize it. But also in verse 27 he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So do we need... Friends, that, this is a question we need to answer. Do we just need to pack up shop because what we're doing is not true, pure religion? Because formalized religion is not represented in this text? Well, friends, James is not saying that, that all religion 
has to be formed or formalized religion has to look that way. He is not saying that all pure and undefiled religion consists of these things only, but mentions that true religion without the things mentioned here is worthless. So true religion that is pure and undefiled before God doesn't consist only in visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unstained from the world, but it must consist of these things in order to be a true religion in the eyes of God. Now another thing that I don't think he's saying here is this. There has to be a widow's ministry in the church. Although that's not a bad thing, and that's not wrong. It's not wrong to do that. And he's not saying that there has to be an, orphan, an orphanage or an orphan's ministry in the church. He's not saying that either. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. He's pointing out a principle. And the principle is that the people of God must care for one another in the same way that God has cared for us. Think about all the passages in Scripture where God loves to draw near to those who are low and destitute, to those who are brokenhearted, to those who are of humble estate, to those who are poor. How the Lord comes and is merciful to those who show mercy. God desires to give mercy to those who are of humble estate, to those who call upon Him. God doesn't turn that kind of heart away. Think of the man in the who said, I'm thankful that I'm not like the tax collector or the sinner. And think of the other man who's over, can't even lift his head to heaven, beating his breast because he knows he's unworthy. The Lord draws near to that. So the principle is that God's people are actually God's hands and his feet. That we actually love in the way that God loves. And the church does not offer counterfeit solutions to real sorrow. Think about the one thing that a widow wants to hear above anything else. Wedding bells on the day of her marriage. The sound of her groom saying, my bride. She wants to see the loving gaze of her husband. What is the one thing an orphan wants to hear? Above anything else, my child. The loving gaze of the Father. See, friends, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in that death, what Christ accomplished on our behalf far exceeds, but also includes these two things. A husband to the widow and a father to the orphan. And because of Jesus Christ's death upon the cross, he became sin that we might become sons. He carried a cross that we might be clothed in white. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God that we, the orphan and the widow, might have the loving gaze of the Father and the church receive the husband. Friend, these three things this passage mentions are fulfilled by the triune God. In God, we have a father. In Christ, we have a husband. And by the Spirit, we are able to keep unstained from the world.
What a glorious truth. What a glorious gospel that is. And how James shapes the gospel in reference to God's own nature. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Beloved, do you love Christ's bride like he does? Do you love God's children like he does? Because the truth of the matter is this. A workless religion is a worthless religion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good to us. We thank you that you are not good to us depending upon how good we are, but depending on how you have accepted us by your beloved Son. Lord, we know that it is difficult to do your word. We know that the weight of doing your word is so heavy. But Lord, help us see that when we gaze into your word and when we are satisfied in your word and we receive your word, And we receive it with meekness. That doing your word should not be a troublesome thing, not a drudgery, but a free thing that we do in Christ because it's something that we want. It's not something we have to be prodded to do. It's just something that we have a heart to do because you give us a new heart. You give us a heart of flesh where there was a heart of stone and you cause us to be softened to you. Lord, I ask that today, that you would cause us to be softened to your word, that you would till up the ground of our hearts, that you would plant your word on our souls, and that you would help us love one another as you have loved the widow, that you have loved the orphan. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us unstained, that you would keep us from practicing a false religion that is worthless and help us practice a religion of truth the truth that you've given us. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our words and our deeds today. And we pray that we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.